Welcome back to Plausible, a podcast where you, the jury, dive with me into the discovery of things having the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy-sounding, hard-to-believe, but true. Got your coffee? You'll need it strong for this one. And join me as we rethink what is, or isn't, plausible. Episode 5, The Whitewashed Ivory Tower Ireland is the most wonderful and beautiful place on Earth. You can have your differing opinions about JFK, but you won't get me to budge on this one. When my husband and I visited, there were many awesome moments. One, just for giggles, was that we went to this great local pie shop in Galway, and the only three pictures hanging on the wall there were of Jesus, the Pope, and JFK. It was fantastic. And the other moment I want to tell you about was when we went on a bit of a goose chase in the town of Rosscray. I can't tell you all the incredible details now, but for starters, you should watch the movie Philomena or read the book about her by Martin Sixsmith. It is a true story about a woman who experiences another thing I'm passionate about researching, crimes that happen within the Catholic Church, especially in her day. Philomena experienced great injustice because she got pregnant out of wedlock in a time when women didn't have many rights or a way to live if they weren't married. So she went to live at a convent in Rosscray, Ireland. The Sean Ross Abbey and the St. Anne's Special School run by the Sisters of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. There she had to endure a horrible birthing process and then work in the stereotypical workhouse-type conditions that these places had for women who were sent there. And all of this only to barely see her son, Anthony. To the nuns, this and more was in the name of penance for her sin. But the worst came after a few years, when the nuns, along with many other children over several years, gave her son up for adoption. There seems to have been some documentation they used to try and make it above board, but it was all under coercion and guilt. Penance again. And Philomena had no say in the matter, didn't even get to say goodbye. There's a bit of a spoiler coming here, but I want to recommend you read or watch to learn for yourself anyway. I felt a deep connection to Philomena's story. And when we went to Ireland, I had to go to Rosscray and see for myself where she walked this suffering and loss. And let me tell you, it is not easy to find. When we entered the town of Rosscray, it was a series of blessed divine interventions that helped us discover how to actually get to the convent. And man, when we got there, we could feel the oppression. We weren't even able to go into any of the buildings, but we could just sense it. I wanted to see it for myself, and I also wanted to find her son's grave, that's the spoiler, which was also not easy to find. But while searching the area, we happened upon something else that was really important. There was a whole grave lot committed to the women and children that lost their lives at Rosscray. And like everything else in this story, it is hidden. There's a huge, open, obvious graveyard for all the nuns, and through a humble gate, down a little windy trail, 
there's a history of lives that should always be remembered. And I will remember. I hope you will now, too. Now, I know that's a heavy introduction, and it's likely you don't need any evidence of how corruption exists in most leadership of the world. But just as Philomena's was sadly a more common experience than we would like to think, the journey we are going on today will expose a much bigger, uglier history of corruption than many know. Today, we dive into the U.S. government. Most often called the Warren Commission, after its chair, Chief Justice Earl Warren, the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy began one week afterwards as the first government entity formed to investigate the tragedy. This entity was put together by Lyndon Johnson with the mission of discovering what happened, but also to appease and put the public at rest. Establishing the commission helped him win a landslide victory for re-election in 1964. The final report given to Johnson on September 24, 1964, was 888 pages, and there were 500-plus witnesses interviewed, which was published in 26 volumes. There was an initial report done by the FBI on the assassination, which had already determined Oswald as the lone gunman, and this served as the blueprint for the commission. So it isn't too surprising that the commission unanimously concluded that Oswald was the lone shooter. It also concluded that the shots that killed Kennedy and wounded Connolly came from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository on Elm Street and only from there. They perpetuated the narrative that Oswald was uneducated, unstable, and a committed communist determined to make a name for himself. They found no conspiracy regarding Oswald or Jack Ruby. You have probably heard of the magic or single bullet theory, which is believed to have originated with Arlen Specter, an assistant for the commission. The commission determined that there were three shots fired. The magic bullet was the first shot that somehow went through Kennedy's neck from behind, then out the front through his tie, so it was not fatal to him, then through the seat in front of him that sat a bit lower and into Governor Connolly's back, then out of the right side of Connolly's chest, into his wrist, and deflecting off of those bones, landing in his left thigh. It is the only bullet found from the crime scene. The second shot missed anything completely, and the third shot, they believe, was the fatal shot to Kennedy's head. Clint Hill, the Secret Service agent assigned to Jackie Kennedy, despite believing Oswald is the lone shooter and that there is no conspiracy, disagrees with the Warren Commission's final conclusion about the shots. He says that he and Mrs. Connolly both thought it was the second shot that wounded her husband. It wasn't the first and only magic bullet. When you review the Zapruder film, it is clear the first shot hits Kennedy in the throat because he is holding up his fists coming out of the other side of the freeway sign. Connolly turns to look at him, but doesn't show signs of being injured himself until just before the third shot, which is the fatal blow to Kennedy. Clintill says that he did not hear the second shot because after the first shot, he was already running toward the presidential car next to the motorcycles. But Mrs. Connolly, who was sitting next to the governor, did hear the second shot and had no doubt that this was the one that hit her husband. We have talked about the failings of the Warren Commission a bit in this podcast already, 
But let's dive into a few more beyond the ridiculous magic bullet theory. First, George de Mornshield, who was Oswald's connection in Dallas, some even go as far as to say he could have been Oswald's CIA handler, felt that the interviews conducted by the commission were intentionally leading the public toward hating the Oswalds. There didn't seem to be much in the 888-page report that tested anything about the narrative of his personality and motives and beliefs. For example, the fact that they don't mention anything about Oswald's summer in New Orleans, even though he was handing out pamphlets in support of Cuba and most likely had connections with the CIA and the mafia. As Eugenio said in his book, Destiny Betrayed, it's easy to walk over somebody when they are lying under a gravestone. Secondly, they had many conflicts of interest. Leon Jaworski, who worked with the CIA, also worked for the Warren Commission, and ironically, his job was to investigate for possible connections between Oswald and the CIA. Surprise, surprise, he did not find any. Jaworski was also one of the attorneys that was with Ford and Warren when they spoke with Jack Ruby when he pleaded to get moved to Washington, D.C., Thirdly, out of the 25 witnesses who testified on the day and the day after the assassination regarding the origins of the shots in Dealey Plaza, 21 pointed to the grassy knoll. This is the area just behind where Abraham Zapruder was filming. Many more witnesses also believed this. But the Warren report concluded that no credible evidence suggests that the shots were fired from the railroad bridge over the triple underpass the nearby railroad yard, or any other place other than the Texas School Book Depository. Here are Agent Hill and Agent Blaine from an interview with the Sixth Floor Museum curator at Dealey Plaza. And if I could, if I could ask you gentlemen to to speculate, one of the really interesting stories is that within a minute after the shooting, a Dallas police officer, Joe Marshall Smith, uh, ran toward the parking lot, toward the grassy knoll and and stockade fence area. And he encountered a man, and Smith had his gun drawn. He encountered a man who identified himself and flashed some credentials that he was Secret Service. And yet, there were no Secret Service men on the ground. Who like, any idea what, who that person could have been? I mean, clearly he had some identification that looked official to the officer. Any idea what that could have been? I, I, don't I have no idea. I don't know. I'm going to have to keep digging, aren't I? You are. Yeah. I can't help. It wasn't a Secret Service agent. <laughs> no, that you can be sure. There were no agents in the area other than on the motorcade. There are a lot of different stories out there, like this one from Smith. Testimonies of people saying that they saw someone behind the grassy knoll area by the railroad tracks. There were people on the railroad side that said they saw some people dressed in police uniform. There are people who thought they saw gun smoke come from the area. It's a really hard one to pin down, but I think it is certainly plausible that there was at least one shooter from that direction. But again, even if there wasn't a shooter there and Oswald was the only shooter, it's highly unlikely that he acted alone. Here's Josiah Tink Thompson again with the New York Times. There is and only ever has been, it seems to me, one threshold question. See, the only question in the case from the very beginning was somebody shooting from up there, up front, up to the right front, up there in the knoll area. Somebody shooting from up there. If shots came 
from more than one direction, then there is no doubt in my mind there was a conspiracy. It's been that simple since back in the 60s, and it's still there. If that can't be known, and I'm not talking about believed or believed with a fair degree of probability, right? But pretty much known, then this case is gonna go into history exactly the way it is now, which is a real mess. Lastly, a failure of the Warren Commission was that the Zapruder film was not viewed by the public until 1975. It was actually Geraldo Rivera on a late-night show called Goodnight America who played it live for the public to see for the first time, thanks to researchers Robert Grodin and Dick Gregory. The public's response and outrage to seeing it led to the beginning of the House Select Committee on Assassinations investigation. Here they were, 12 years after the assassination, and people realized there was a high likelihood they had the wool pulled over their eyes, despite the work of the Warren Commission. So then, who were they? Seven members comprised the Warren Commission. They were Chief Justice Earl Warren, Senator Richard Russell Jr., Senator John Sherman Cooper, Congressman Hale Boggs, Congressman Gerald Ford, Alan Dulles, and John J. McCloy. Chief Justice Earl Warren had been governor of California and then became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Interestingly, during the commission's work, only Warren saw the autopsy photos. Allegedly, he didn't let the rest of the team see because he was sensitive about that sort of content and showing others. He thought they were too graphic. So the rest of the members only learned from the written documents of the autopsy, which would be tough given that they weren't doctors. Earl Warren died from cardiac arrest in 1974 at 83 years old. Alan Dulles. This is the same Alan Dulles that Kennedy fired after the failure of the Bay of Pigs. The same one that seemed to keep popping up in interesting places in history and was a former director of the CIA. But at the time of the commission, he was obviously no longer on staff with the CIA and was extremely involved in the commission. In Diogenio's book, he says, One of the main tenets of this book is that Alan Dulles was one of the top-level active agents in both the conspiracy to kill Kennedy and the disgraceful official cover-up of his death. Dulles did not have a full-time job, so made the commission his full-time job plus some. At the first meeting, he issued everyone on the commission a book which talked about how American assassinations were the work of unaided, lone gunmen. So, you know, pretty impartial. Also, just to drive the point home of how ridiculously entrenched all these politicians were, Allen's brother, John Foster Dulles, was the Secretary of State under Eisenhower as well as a senator for New York. The Washington Dulles Airport was named after him. Alan Dulles died of a severe case of the flu in 1969 at 75. Gerald Ford was a Republican from Michigan. He served as the House Minority Leader for a bit, but then became Vice President to Nixon after Spiro Agnew was charged with tax evasion and money laundering. He then became President when Nixon resigned due to the Watergate scandal. But he was not re-elected for a second term. Ford is the one who allegedly changed the commission's initial description of where the bullet had entered JFK's body when he was killed, as well as preparing a biography of Oswald. 
Allegedly, he knew more about JFK's death than people realized and believed privately that Oswald had help. In an FBI memo from 1963 that was released to the public in 2008, Ford was in contact with the FBI throughout his time on the commission and relayed information to the deputy director about the panel's activities. Ford died in 2006 at 93 years old. Senator Richard Russell Jr. was a lifelong bachelor and part of the Democratic Party, a governor of Georgia for two years, and a senator for 40 years. When he died, he was actually the most senior member of the Senate. He was the co-author of the Southern Manifesto, which was a pro-segregation document opposing racial integration of public spaces. So, he was a racist. He was also a key mentor for LBJ. Russell died in 1971 at age 73 of emphysema. Congressman Hale Boggs was a Catholic Democrat member of the House from New Orleans, Louisiana. He was House Majority Leader and signed the Southern Manifesto as well, voting three times against the Civil Rights Act, but ended up voting for it in 1968. Boggs' story is pretty interesting. In 1972, while he was still Majority Leader, he went on a fundraising drive with a couple of other people in Alaska. When the twin-engine airplane disappeared when flying from Anchorage to Juneau, The National Transportation Safety Board reported that the pilot's portable emergency transmitter, permissible in lieu of a fixed transmitter on the plane, was found in an aircraft at Fairbanks, Alaska. Neither the wreckage of the plane nor the pilot and passenger's remains were ever found. One last note on Boggs. In 1973, his wife was elected as a Democrat to Congress by special election to the seat left vacant by his death. So she was the first woman to be elected to Congress from Louisiana. She was re-elected to the eight succeeding Congresses from 73 all the way to 91. In 1997, President Bill Clinton appointed Lindy Boggs U.S. Ambassador to the Holy See, S-E-E, which is the leadership of the Catholic Church, where she served until 2001. Senator John Sherman Cooper was a Republican politician from Kentucky. He had been colleagues with Kennedy in the Senate, and after elected as president, Kennedy hired him for a secret fact-finding mission in New Delhi and Moscow. Cooper was an outspoken opponent of LBJ's decision to escalate U.S. military involvement in the Vietnam War, advocating negotiation with the North Vietnamese instead. This was in line with JFK's perspective. As it's known, he was fighting for peace And as time has passed, there's more evidence that he had a plan to take the troops out of Vietnam. In 1991, Cooper died of heart failure in a retirement home in Washington at age 89. John J. McCloy was a lawyer, diplomat, banker, and a prominent United States advisor to all presidents from FDR to Ronald Reagan. He also served as the second president of the World Bank. At first, he opposed the civil rights movements, but he changed his mind and was a voice toward ending segregation in the military, testifying before the President's Committee on Equality of Treatment and Opportunity in the Armed Services. He died in 1989 of pulmonary edema at his Greenwich home at the age of 93. McCloy was initially skeptical of the lone gunman theory, but he took a trip to Dallas with Alan Dulles, who was an old friend apparently and Dulles convinced him that it was Oswald. 
To avoid a minority dissenting report, McCloy strategically helped with the final consensus and the specific wording of the conclusion of the final report. Boggs, Russell, and Cooper were part of one division of the commission that seemed to have more reservations about what they were doing and the outcome. They had concerns about Marina Oswald being a main witness for the commission and about her in general. They also had reservations about Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone and the magic bullet theory. Now, as we learned already, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which we will just call the Select Committee, was established as a second official government investigation because of the new details that came to the public's attention through the viewing of the Zapruder film. The Warren Commission had to work with the FBI and CIA, who were not very willing to cooperate and sometimes thwarted the research. So the Select Committee was a great opportunity to dive into more things and demand there be more transparency. One of the main disappointments from the Select Committee was that they agreed with the Commission about the magic bullet theory and supported it. But there were lots of helpful things they were willing to discover that the Commission did not. They concluded that Carlos Marcello, mob boss of Texas and Louisiana, was a plotter in JFK's murder. I actually just spoke with someone recently who knew Marcello's grandkids, and he reminded me that there was an attempt by JFK to deport Marcello down to Guatemala in 1961, but of course, he is in the mafia and super connected, so within two months he was back in the United States. I would guess he made it clear to the U.S. government he would not be leaving, so it gives more possibility for motive of getting Kennedy out of office. Dorothy Kilgallen, the reporter we talked about who interviewed Jack Ruby, was putting pieces of the puzzle together before she died, and also said that Marcello, as well as H.L. Hunt, were involved in the plot. Marcello had given large campaign contributions to LBJ, and LBJ was also paid to protect the mob's illegal gambling in Texas. Though the select committee ultimately came to the conclusion that the National Crime Syndicate was not involved as a whole in the assassination, They did say it was a possibility that a small group out of it could have devised a plot. The select committee also had scientists do acoustic testing to see where the shots were fired from in Dealey Plaza with the help of the police audio recording from that day. The scientists concluded shots came from the schoolbook depository and the grassy knoll. They also stated in their medical evidence and related issues pertaining to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in March 1979 that they never examined JFK's brain because although it was supposed to have been kept, it was missing. They said in their report, the panel itself was unable to examine the brain because it is among certain autopsy materials which are unaccounted for. (laughs) The report from the select committee came out in 1979 and said this as their conclusion. The committee believes, on the basis of the evidence available to it, that President John F. Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The committee is unable to identify the other gunmen or the extent of the conspiracy. Mic drop. Before closing the topic of the commission, let me introduce you to one last person. William C. Sullivan, the number two in the FBI to Hoover. He said he was glad that Ford was chosen for the commission because of Ford's support of Hoover and the FBI, which we have heard a little bit about the extent of. Well, Sullivan was one of the many who were collateral damage in this whole tragedy in our country's history. 
He was killed in a quote-unquote hunting accident just before he was to testify for the House Select Committee on Assassinations. He died November 9th, 1977. The court ruled he had been shot on accident by another hunter. So this hunter who allegedly shot him was fined $500 and stripped of his hunting license for 10 years. Not too shabby. Sullivan was one of six top FBI officials who died within six months before testifying. And all were people that had either expertise in forensics or things related to JFK assassination investigations. You, the jury, there is an 888-page document you can read released by the Warren Commission. And based off of what you have heard, did they do their job? Did any government entity adequately investigate and try those necessary regarding Kennedy's assassination? Or did they use their investigations just to appease the public and push their own agendas and answers? Is it plausible? Thank you for joining me for this episode of Plausible. I'd love for you to subscribe so you can continue to be part of the jury. These are my theories and ideas formed from the wealth of knowledge of many others. If you are interested in those details, check out the sources on our Instagram, plausible underscore podcast. Specific to this episode, if you want to learn more, I'd recommend exploring the National Archives to see what they've released, jfkfacts.org for information and a countdown of how long Biden has until deciding to release the remaining classified files, and keep an eye out for Oliver Stone's new film, JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. It runs deep, people. Plausible is written and narrated by Christina Hoagland, edited and produced by James Lobwin, music by Rodent Law.